Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. How do you innovate inside of a company with decades of rich history, with business models that are firmly entrenched, delivering on a product that people have consumed effectively the same way for centuries? My guest today is Maya Thomas, Chief Innovation Officer for Hachette, one of the largest book publishers in the world, and Director of the Hachette Innovation Program, focusing on the intersection of publishing and digital innovation. And in this conversation, we discuss some of the challenges to innovation inside the publishing industry, uh, the rise of voice interfaces and the implications that they present, the future of augmented reality, how publishers leverage big data to improve the publishing process, and much more. The publishing industry is a fascinating one. I think you'll find it super interesting. And with that, let's go to Maya. Well, Maya, thank you for being here. Uh, why don't we just start off with your role and the role of kind of the innovation group over there? How, what do you spend your time working on and, and what would you say the group's kind of mandate is inside of the organization? Well, it's a very broad mandate. You know, we have headquarters in four different countries. We do two different kinds of publishing. So we do both trade and educational trade, meaning, you know, fiction, nonfiction okay. and educational publishing. So it's a pretty wide, um, it's a pretty wide scope. The innovation program is sort of sitting at the at the crossroads of sort of technology and storytelling, and we're trying to look for consumer trends, how the market is changing, how new technologies and business models are evolving. We look at innovation in adjacent fields, and all of this is to find new sources of revenue and or savings for our publishers. We also want to make sure that we're aware of how storytelling is evolving and, and how that might present new opportunities for us. Mm-hmm. And we would love to be closer to our readers. Um, so we have we have many goals and we, we work very closely with the ambassadors and the publishers in our different imprints to understand what they are seeing and what they want to experiment with. We watch what's happening. What I mean by that is we we prepare reports on things we think are interesting. So on things like podcasting mm-hmm. yeah. or on augmented reality, and then we'll share, we'll share those reports. We also identify startups who are working in those areas who might be good partners for experiments. Uh, and then we will set up a proof of concept and run proof of concepts internally and then share the results of those. And if they're successful, then we try to scale those up. Got it and turn them over to different parts of the organization based on, on what we've learned and what, who the most appropriate, what the most appropriate place within the organization is. It seems like one of the issues that an organization like yours might run into would be the business, the business is sort of, um, the business model around the business has been pretty established and there's a whole bunch of different, you know, you've got the author and you've got the agent and you've got the publisher and you've got, you know, this whole kind of ecosystem and, and distributors and all, all that kind of big platforms for digital and all that kind of stuff. I mean, does that impose any sort of barriers or challenges to trying more disruptive sort of paradigms? Or are there are there any sort of issues that you kind of run to, run into as a, as, as a function of sort of the legacy sort of ecosystem? Or how do you, how do you think about that stuff? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's very a basic problem that we've got. Um, you know, a, ch- a challenge for us. I mean, our core business is physical books, right? So we need to make sure that there's a, a vibrant ecosystem that supports reading in all formats and retailers of all types. That said, you know, there's a limited grant of rights that we get as book publishers. And sometimes what we want to do in the innovation group um, doesn't fall within that traditional grant of rights. And there could be some tension there. 
Um, although what we generally find is that if the rights aren't being um, used by the author or the agent, that we can go back to the author and, and talk to them. And we have, we have authors that we've identified as what we call digital pioneers, and that's been the case for a long, long time. And you know, we know that they're willing to do experiments with us and they're willing to do something that's different than what they've been doing for all these years. Um, and they're, they welcome that because authors are innovators, right? As, yeah. as tellers, they're always coming up with new things. So, you know, there is, there is some tension there. Like, I'll give you an example. Way back in the day, even when we had audio rights in, uh, in, for our books, which we always have now, um, but we didn't always have back in the past, um, some contracts wouldn't allow us to do a multi-voiced um, audio production because they thought that it would f- interfere with film or dramatic rights. So we oh. have, and of course, I think you and I would say, "Hey, if there's a multi-voice audiobook, that does not interfere with a film right." You know, it's a totally different thing. <laughs> right, right. But um, you know, agents could be very sensitive about that sort of thing. So we'd have to go back and you know see if we could carve out um, an understanding there because there are some some audiobooks that just. You know, if there's if there are two main characters and they're really really different, it's nice to have two people reading those parts. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't that doesn't preclude a film being made or a series or, or anything like that. So, you know, the rights are the rights are one piece of it. Um, business models are you know firmly established, and as you said, they've been you know longstanding, and they are also vary from country to country. So, for instance, uh, the Lang Loire. Is in France means you can't discount books uh, beyond a certain. I think you can discount them a certain percentage, but n- not very much. Oh, interesting. That puts every, that puts every bookstore on an equal footing, um, which is great for their bookstores. And you can see if you walk around Paris, there's many, many bookstores, and yeah. they're doing very well. It's great. But um, let's say I wanted to do something, or uh, one of our publishers wanted to do something in terms of putting three books together and selling them for a special price in terms of the digital version, or they wanted to add an audio version to a physical book, um, all that would come under, you know, some of the laws that um, would preclude you doing that because of discounting. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexities and a lot of challenges. Yes. But, you know, it's a, it's a vibrant business. There's, there's so many creatives in it. And it's not that we are always coming up against roadblocks. We're mostly finding our way, you know, to new territories. And that's very exciting. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you mentioned audio, you know, a couple of times. I know that's one of the areas that that you personally, from a background perspective and just otherwise are most interested in, you know, being able to tell stories, certainly from a fiction perspective, but I would imagine even from a nonfiction. And and it sounds like, you know, you're thinking about education as well. How, I guess broadly, how do you think about audio in terms of kind of future state maybe? And like, what do you you think some of the things or some of the possibilities that maybe that audio could enable Yeah, I think Arnaud Nori, our chairman, has talked about this in a really interesting way. You know, he talked about digital 1.0 as being kind of replication of books. So what he meant by that was, you know, e-books are a replication in digital form of a book. And an audio book is a replication, not quite one-to-one the way an e-book is, because I think that as an audio producer, I would say that we, we put our finger, you know, we put our finger on things that can make it a little bit different in using music and sound effects and um, also just, you know, having a performer interpret the words makes it different than a replica. But there's so much that can be done that's beyond replication. You know, starting with 
storytelling, starting with the technology as, as a way of telling the story, right? Mobile first storytelling that would, you know, what if your phone, uh, what if the story was a, was a sort of template and it could pull in from your phone, you know, your photos, your location, your, the places you visit, and all of those became elements of the story. Or imagine that, you know, that what audio also allows is interactivity, you know, we, we now use our Google Home or Alexa or HomePod to ask for things and uh, for storytelling, of course. But, for instance, with Alexa, um, we did a, a story for kids based on a series called Classroom 13. And so this is a sort of choose your own adventure, but it's cued using the kid's voice. So at a certain point in the story, a genie gives, you know, you have three wishes and each of those wishes leads down different paths. And I think we're used to thinking of books and audio as being, you know, one, one directional. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I think that when you start to, understand that there can be interactivity, you get many different expectations. And choose your own adventure is a simple, a simple example, but I can imagine that there would be um, forms of storytelling that would be far more complex than that, that uh, we've already done some experimentation with chatbots. And I think, you know, like imagine a story that you're reading or listening to, and it's a mystery, and all of a sudden you have the opportunity to interrogate a suspect in the mystery. Um, so now you stop the story and you're going to talk directly to the character, which we, we would use a chat bot to do that. It was just, it's a, di- a totally different thing than, than reading a story in the, in the traditional sense or listening to a story. So I think it, it opens up a lot of really fascinating avenues. I mean, it seems like lump, you know, lumping everything sort of into, into, into voice, even there's a contextual component to it too, right? Like I'm, I'm on, I'm driving in my car for my commute. I've got an hour and a half maybe or versus I'm making dinner and there's kind of, you know, kids are running around or whatever and I'm listening to it in the kitchen and in front of a group or, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the subway or, you know, I've got a, a, an eight-hour drive for a family trip or whatever it is. I mean, how does context impact consumption as it relates to this stuff? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and, and you're quite right that, you know, you think of length as being very important in this, right? So you want something quick and breezy to listen to while you're getting ready for work or something lively and imaginative to keep kids off screens or long form for your road trip. But there's more than that. There's more than length. I mean, there's, of course, there's different things, different stories of different lengths that can be adapted to all these situations. But there's also diction, right? So like, we're all used to multitasking. And I think that, you know, the rise of audiobooks and the kind of popularity of audiobooks skyrocketing has to do with the multitasking. But I think it also has to do with people getting used to listening to podcasts and realizing that there's a kind of range of diction among podcasts, right? That you've got very kind of conversational to people just sitting there across yeah. a desk chatting and then you have super, super high production value, very suspenseful, you know, using music. There's different forms of audio that are appropriate for different moments. And I think, you know, as, as audio producers and as, as storytellers, we're going to have to adapt to that and understand that, you know, this one way of reading is not going to be appropriate for every situation. 
does, you mentioned, I mean, it seems like you could get that you could take that really, really far in terms of uh, not only having multiple actors or, you know, readers, um, but even enhancing it with, you know, you, you know, you kind of mentioned like television or things like that. Like it, it seems like you could get to a place where you're doing effects and, and all kinds of, all kinds of things. I would imagine that they given, you know, again, sort of legacy business model, not just legacy business models in terms of kind of how the players are set up, but also just in terms of kind of consumer um, expectations and the mental models they have around what their expectations are um, in terms of how much things should cost and things like that. It seems like you might bump up into sort of an upper, an upper bound of, of what you, what you're capable of kind of creating and having it while having it be kind of economically feasible when you're exploring sort of the, the, you know, especially when you're th- talking about fiction and telling better stories and the entertainment value kind of aspect of it, like how, how does, how do sort of the economic realities of that sort of come in, come into play? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and the economics of audiobook production are, you know, very, very widely. And I think what's, what's interesting is that, you know, audiobooks are one of the most expensive formats of all the ones we're talking about, right? And they're expensive for that reason is that you, you know, you've got to get an actor in the studio and sometimes you need voice coaches and sometimes you need a dialect coach and sometimes you have a producer and an assistant producer and sometimes you license music or in my case, you know, when I work with David Sedaris, I, I can sometimes hire a composer to write music specific to what we're doing. So all of those things can go, you know, you can take, just like a podcast, you can have a very low production value, right. a very budget, or you can, or you can really break the bank. And, you know, on some projects that I've worked on, you know, I've, I've worked on restoring Martin Luther King's archive. Um, so all these sermons and speeches that were scattered among archives, you know, in reel to reel tapes or on audio cassettes, um, we digitized and, you know, we hired, we, we licensed music from the time period and we got introductions from various people. I mean, that was a really, that was a five-year project that had an, an immense budget. And, but it also has, you know, ongoing evergreen historical value like that. The cost of making that, you know, you, you almost have to say you, you can't pay attention to that because it's, it's going to live forever or until, you know, it will live throughout our civilization. But if it's something that's, you know, that's, that's more, um, you know, something that's going to be popular for a few minutes or that we, that you don't even know is going to be popular. Like that's the problem is that audio production happens at the same time as book production. So we can have expectations about what a book is going to sell, but those expectations are not always met. So you have to decide how much to spend on the audio before you know how the book performs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that is a really tricky proposition. And since audio books have become so popular, you know, we used to do just kind of the top the top percentage of our books that we were certain were going to perceive, were going to succeed. And now there's a lot of pressure to do almost everything that we publish because people want it day and date with the publication of the, of the, of the hardcover. Yeah. So, um, that, that's where, that's where my colleagues have to be really careful and, you know, judicious about what they spend. There's this whole idea of sort of like transmedia and, and we were interested, we were involved in, in a project like that. And it was pretty fascinating in terms of, you know, there were all of these sort of landing page sites that were all kind of collectively telling a, 
a story and they were using it kind of as a prequel to sort of lead up to the launch of a title. And it, you know, it seemed like it resonated given the type of genre that it was in. And we were pretty fascinated when they launched it and, you know, we weren't, we didn't know what to expect. And there was immediately this sort of rapid group of people who followed this particular author and immediately went to, you know, try to deconstruct this whole thing. And is that a, I mean, how, how common is that? And do folks use it like in their use case, it was, it was, it was to drum up interest and kind of build anticipation for the launch of the book, but it was sort of outside of the bounds of the actual narrative itself. Um, or are folks kind of trying to fold things like that more into the actual storytelling of, of the title itself? Well, I would say, you know, it, it's not common. <laughs> what you're okay. talking about, not common, but I think it's really, really interesting. And I, I love the idea of like drawing outside of the lines by, by expanding a story or a universe beyond the book. There's, you know, there's sequels, prequels, there's characters that could be drawn out and ha- made into their own stars of their own story. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see how readers could interact with a book's world via social or mobile. You know, we, we've been looking at that a lot. And, and we looked at um, one example was this uh, series, a teen drama series called Scam that started in Norway um, a few years ago, and it's been adapted in nine countries. It's a, trans, it's a transmedia storytelling series, and they are really focused on, you know, Gen Z, something that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about too, Gen Z or Gen X, you know, and how they, how they expect to be moving amongst the apps on their phones all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so this, this series took advantage of that, you know, where they created Facebook pages and social media pages for the characters that where people were interacting, characters were interacting with each other, um, in these different platforms. So you would have to scoot around between Facebook and Snapchat and messenger and in order to fill in the gaps, or you could, you didn't necessarily have to do that, but it would it would add more texture and depth to the story. I think that's something, you know, I would love to see an author um, start to conceive of a story that way and, and allow us to figure out how to do it. But yes, yeah, to your point, it seems like they have to, they have to almost be thinking about that format from the outset if they're going to, if you're going to tell a story kind of across multiple mediums and have it all make sense. That There's other things too, that we're seeing like whole different ways of, of consuming stories. Like I'm not sure if you're familiar with tap and hooked, but those are both kind yeah. of tap to read, uh, platforms where, you know, they, the whole story unfolds as a text message, mm-hmm. text messages between characters. Um, and again, like that just, that just takes, uh, you know, it blurs the line. You know, what, what is this? Is this a play? Is this, <laughs> you know, it's a play because it's only dialogue, but it's not really a play because it's all on your phone. And text messages have emojis in them and they have yeah, gifts in yeah. them. And suddenly you can use all the things that you use in your daily life in, in storytelling. But that's a really different way of telling a story. And we actually hired um, a writer to do a tap to read story for us that we did, that we put on Facebook Messenger. Yeah. And it's a story that lives, that's part of the world of the, of the book, but bridges to, um, two parts of a series. So it, it, as you said, it drummed up interest in the next thing, but it, it stood on its own as its own narrative as well. That sounds like you, you mentioned kind of Gen Z and, you know, shifting form factors and things like that. It, 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 I would imagine there's probably a tension that 
folks feel in the space around there's this rich, rich history around, you know, bookmaking and publishing and all of that sort of stuff. And then there's this very rapid shift in terms of people's consumption patterns. And, you know, you read articles about people's attention spans and all of those sorts of things. And so I would imagine, you know, there's, there's this interesting balance where you're having to kind of juggle the preservation of, of this, this legacy that's really important. And, and there are certain, you know, certain types of material that, that obviously still lend themselves uh, to books and there's certain audiences, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a constant book reader myself, but I would imagine that there's a conversation at least going on around what a book is. And like you mentioned, like the text messaging sort of conversation, you know, that's, you're deconstructing (laughs) what a book is. And it's, it's almost like it's, I'm telling a, I'm telling a narrative through print or through even voice, like you were saying, um, as you sort of strip away a lot of the constructs of what makes a book a book. I mean, how, how do, how do you, how, how do those conversations unfold in, in an organization like yours around, you know, pre- preserving the, the things that make a book great while also sort of adapting to different form factors and different formats and all that kind of stuff? Well, I'd say it's a really complicated question and, and it's uh, a complicated issue, but I think one way you can do it, and that's, you, you alluded to this earlier, is you can make all those things part of marketing, right? You mm-hmm. can market and promote a book using all these new ways. Yeah. Um, and you're not, you know, you're not, that's not very disruptive because marketing can be anything and it's, and it doesn't challenge the primacy of the book. But I mean, we don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, as I said, the physical book is our main, mm-hmm. that's our main business. Yeah. And um, it's also a perfect thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with the physical book. The physical book has worked really, really well for hundreds of years and yeah. continues to be, you know, it's almost like you can't improve upon it because it doesn't need batteries and you can look at it in direct sunlight and you can carry it with you and you can give it to someone and you can highlight it and you could just, it's, yeah. it's yeah. a perfect object, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can just think, okay, now we're done. We still have to um, be thinking, as you said, about new consumers, new generations, what their expectations are. That's why, you know, Ashet has been doing some uh, investments in adjacent fields. So we bought some mobile gaming studios, I oh, should wow. say, yeah. you know, yeah. in France, there's some mobile and, and in England, there's some mobile gaming studios that we've been working with or some brain training creators, um, board games, you know, it's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we're interested in that don't fit into, um, just like a book on paper that gives us the opportunity to think beyond the legacy of, of where the business has been and where it's going. <laughs> From a business model perspective, too, I mean, I, that, that, that's, that's really, it seems like that, that positions you well in the future as authors, you know, start to think of themselves as brands almost. And, you know, the book is one sort of delivery mechanism, but you mentioned like board games and things like that and, and some of these other delivery mechanisms. I would imagine that there's, you know, when you think about, you talked about rights and things like that around things like movies and things like that, but as new, as new as new formats kind of emerge and there are new ways to sort of tell stories, it, it does seem like that would make sense to kind of position uh, you all kind of in the future to where the legacy kind of models haven't been established yet to kind of have a, have a, have a good seat at the table in terms of being able to tell that story and to be able to kind of participate with the author, you know, kind of across mediums. And to also just 
give them, you know, talk to them about ideas, about new ways of doing things. Um, mm. So, yeah. And I think one thing that we're really good at doing for authors is managing complexity, because as you said, you know, with the supply chain and all the retailers and figuring out how do you do things in digital and how you do them, you know, how you get things into stores and how you market them. That's why authors have publishers, right? Otherwise, everyone would be a self-published author, is that there's so much complexity to manage. And we have so many people within the organization that are specialists and that are focused on all these particulars that have to happen and have to happen in, you know, very smooth ways for a book to find its audience. Similarly, you know, we can manage some of the complexity around these new formats and these new opportunities so that, you know, an author can extend his or her brand amongst, you know, the, in, in these new ways. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can help them do that. What about with, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, again, Gen Z and kind of they're used to being on, on their phones all the time and all that kind of stuff. How, how do you think about like social as it relates to books is, you know, the, the, is there an equivalent of sort of the, the offline book club kind of transitioning online? Is there, are there opportunities that you see to kind of make it more of a social type of um, activity using technology to kind of enable some of that? Yeah. I mean, I'm really of two minds here. I mean, for, for me and for many other readers, books, audiobooks, they're, they're a solitary pleasure. You know, they're mm-hmm. a really intimate one-on-one with the, with the writer. And I don't want to break that spell. I don't want to leave that charmed space. But um, on the other hand, when I passionately love a book, I like to search out more about it and about the author. It's interesting to go back and see what other passages have been highlighted by others, mm-hmm. shared on, what quotes have been shared on Goodreads, you know, what author interviews exist. So I have to do a lot of that work right now, but I, you know, you could have embedded links. You could have, you could have lots of different ways that that, that would be easier. And then, you know, when it comes to innovation, I always try to remind myself that it's not about me. Um, it's about the readers to come and that other readers may want to share their reactions in real time in a way that I don't. And if that's the case, it's not really a book club so much as a, a kind of ongoing conversation with the author as part of it. And sometimes the author can be a part of it. I mean, you have these you have these venues where the author will do an ask me anything kind of format um, and people can ask them directly about what they were thinking. So if that's what readers want, technology will evolve to make it easier for them to do that. You mentioned, uh, you know, the book being kind of a perfect object and in terms of you can carry it around, it doesn't run out of batteries, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously there've been, you know, the Kindle and the Nook and all that kind of stuff. And, and I would imagine that the Nook at least, and maybe some of the other non sort of Kindle readers were trying to kind of innovate around color screens and maybe being a little bit more immersive or creating at least the potential for that to be more immersive. And it doesn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's been a tremendous amount of, um, I guess, like innovation at scale around kind of breaking out of the words on a black and white page and Kindle still kind of being the dominant player in that category and all of that kind of stuff. Are there economic reasons why that hasn't happened? Is it user preference? Like, do, do users just, you know, we've, we've tested it and users just prefer, you know, black and white? Yeah, that's, that's really, it's really interesting because in a way it's the limitation of that form factor, you know, that it's the, the e-ink is purpose built for reading, only mm-hmm. for reading. Yeah. It's nice because when you're reading, you're not getting notifications <laughs> and you're not 
you're not moving over to surf, you know, your socials. You're not, you're not looking at something on Instagram. You know, instead you have this enforced focus and you have, but you have enforced focus, but you also have the ability to at any moment, you know, if you're reading a book and some other author is mentioned or some quote, um, you can go and buy that book right away. I mean, you have a virtually unlimited library in your hand. And in the sun, and you don't have to worry about battery life because it's not—it's not like your phone that's draining battery all the time. It's lovely because it's—it's it's sort of the simplification of it makes it better for reading, and that's—that's that's something that's really interesting. I mean, when I when I first started working on eBooks, you know, I got very excited. A lot of us did about enhanced eBooks. So, speaking of economics, we spent a lot of money creating these enhancements for books, like maps that you could find, you know, where the characters were in Los Angeles during the mystery, you know, mm-hmm. or charts and graphs or interviews with the authors or, um, you know, all this other stuff that we kind of put inside the ebook. And then we were like, well, this is, this is costing us a lot of money to do this. So we're going to also charge more for it. Well, it turned out that people just didn't really see the value. There right. wasn't, there wasn't this huge thirst to get all this, uh, all these enhancements. They were happy with what they um, we're used to having. And so sometimes you just have to listen to what the, the audience is telling you. I've sort of settled onto a uh, consumption pattern where I'll, I'll, I'll download the book electronically, partially just because the low friction and I get to have it immediately and it's instant gratification and I'm, my book budget is stupid. And, but if I enjoy one, I end up buying a physical copy and it's almost like it's a totem or a memento kind of of that experience. Like I really enjoyed it. I read, maybe read the whole thing digitally, but then I have it to refer back later. Or you mentioned to kind of give us a gift or anything like that. Is that a common sort of usage pattern? And, and if so, does it lend itself to maybe, you know, the physical version becoming uh, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering if there's opportunities to make it more like a, more of a memento or more of like a, you know, like a investing in quality around that, assuming that it's going to be given or assuming that it's sort of a, a token um, of, a, of a good reading experience. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Um, we, we were studying that because, you know, in Japan, there are these books that come out in a serial form that, are, that start out digital first. You know, they're mobile, they're mobile stories and they're free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way that but then at the end, after the book has been, you know, read on the phone every day, people buy physical versions of it just for what you said to put on a shelf and to have as a set and to have as this physical reminder of of the experience they had. And I, I, I that's a really that's that strikes me as being fascinating. That's not an economic model that we have here in the US or in France, but it's certainly fascinating. And and I think you see with books like, you know, like the Isaacson mm-hmm. books, I think that everyone who bought um, the Steve Jobs book, you know, bought it in every format because they they listened to it or they or they read the the digital version and they searched amongst it, but they also wanted to have that book on their shelves. So I think there's certain books where um, it certainly it makes sense. And, and I know when I really love a book, I, I want to have it with me at all times. So I want it in my in my digital library, but I also want to have it at home. My so, wife does a similar thing, a similar version. Her her workflow is because uh, she wanted to read biographies for years and years and never they were so big and daunting she wouldn't get around to it. And 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 she sort of settled on a version where she buys the physical copy. 
she prefers paper, but then she also buys the audiobook. So for her commutes and things like that, where she doesn't have to lug around this, this 20 page, you know, this 20 pound monolith. But when she's at home, she would prefer to kind of read the paper version. And then she's listening to the audio version during her commute or whatever. It's interesting that, you know, and, and just picks right up where she left off and all that kind of stuff. I also love that about audio, the way that um, theoretically, you know, it could follow you through your day, you know, that you could start, you could start listening in the morning while you're getting ready. And then you can move to the car and listen in the car. And then you can use it on your walk in the afternoon, your, you know, your Apple watch could remind you that you've got a story waiting. Mm -hmm. It can kind of be your companion through the day because it's such a multitasking medium. I'm the same. I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I, at a certain point, like I want to go back to the physical book. It's, it's like you want to have it. And sometimes I feel like we remember things very differently too, that we hear or that we read on, on a page. And I, I know that when I, when I, I do a lot of listening as I, I'm a long distance walker. And, you know, when I go back to a place where I've listened to a story that story is imprinted in that place. Like it sticks there in a strange way. Um, so that I can, I can actually get, I can remember it by walking the path again. And meanwhile, you know, if I'm reading a book and I'm trying to remember some quote, I know where on the four quadrants that quote is yeah. because I have spatial memory. I'm sure you have the same yeah, thing. Totally. Yeah. No, it's like the bottom right hand corner. And, yeah. and so yeah. we just, we have a very different way of, absorbing, absorbing the books. So. Yeah. You mentioned the Apple watch. Um, I would imagine that the publishers have complicated relationships with some of these big, these big players like, you know, Amazon and, Am- and Apple and meet Google or, or whoever else. Um, and they're all trying to kind of be everything to everybody at all times. And, you know, they sort of, attend, you know, how, how do publishers kind of approach relationships with these, with these big players? I mean, obviously, you know, you need to work, uh, with them, um, with digital distribution and some of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's it's tricky, right? Because all the players that you mentioned, they're really innovative players, right? I mean, we have we have Sony to thank for bringing the first e-reader out. I mean, but then Amazon really perfected it. Uh, you know, made this bookstore available in a way that had never been that we've never seen before. Right. So it, op- it, it's opportunities for the, for the authors and for readers and for us. Um, but at the same time, you have to think carefully about the walled garden effect of, of these platforms and about what you may be giving up when you, when you enter into those, into those agreements. So it's, it's really a balancing act. Um, but I would have to say that, you know, as someone who's focused on innovation, I try to, think about how they can help us um, reach new people, tell stories better, make technology disappear so that the book kind of hovers somewhere above the technology. I mean, I, I, I really do respect how um, bold and innovative they've been, and I want, I want to partner with them in the best way possible. Related to, to sort of some of the tech stuff, it seems like there's, a, I mean, a really big opportunity, I would imagine, in terms of things like big data and machine learning and potentially change the way that books are, are created, either in terms of, I don't know, like A-B a- a- testing concepts or maybe even, you know, doing some pretty radical stuff around like 
A-B testing the book itself after it's live? I don't know. I mean, how, how do you, first of all, do you, do you all use the leverage kind of big data or, or sort of machine learning or any sort of algorithmic stuff um, in general in terms of kind of book creation or, or trend identification or whatever it is? How do, you, how do you think about that kind of stuff? And then maybe, you know, where do you sort of see that, that, that going from an industry perspective? Oh yeah. I mean, I think you, I think you've really hit the nail on the head here. There's so much that can be done that, that we're just starting to do as publishers. And there's, there's so many in, interesting applications, um, you know, from adaptive learning solutions for education where the book, uh, the textbook adapts to the, the student's level of understanding. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, there's there's using computer vision to test covers. Uh, we have a startup that we work with where you can see where the heat, the heat of someone's attention goes on the book page or on, on rather on the book cover. Yeah. To see whether it's going toward the image or the author's name mm-hmm. or the the title, and um, you can change it accordingly. Yeah. Uh, you could do that for marketing materials too. You could use, you, we work with a company that uses AI for voice replication. And I don't mean like Siri, but what I mean is they would sample your voice or my voice. And then, um, you could have a text that was typed that would be read in my voice or in your voice. Oh, got it. Yeah. Something like the deep, the deep fake stuff, which spooks people out in a lot of cases, but in this case, that makes a ton of sense. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, if you wanted to have a voice of a brand, like it could even be your voice and my voice put together to, yeah. be, to create a new voice that would be the voice of a brand. And then any new marketing materials could be spoken in that voice, which is super interesting. You know, and of course, we can optimize a lot of, our, of the processes that, that we have internally. Um, but one thing that we'll, that'll never do is is take the place of creation, right? It's never going to, we're never going to use AI to write stories. Uh, I, I shouldn't say never, but I, I can't imagine a future that where that would be something we would want to do. There's always going to be, it's always going to be a tool that can be used to, to optimize other things mm-hmm. we're doing, but not for that. What do you think authors kind of appetite would be not necessarily to, you know, obviously not to write the story itself, but to assist them in, sculpting a narrative is there not is there a use case there i mean i obviously and it, i'm sure part of it depends on the nature of the author and how they think about technology and all that kind of, or in about their creative process and all that kind of thing but um are there opportunities to help you know to to equip them you know sort of like I'm th- it, it sounds almost like you know like like polling data for a for a politician or something like that but is that something that generally you think would be frowned upon or is there a way to kind of help, help equip them with, Hey, we think that this will, this approach will, will resonate better with your audience while still kind of preserving the, you know, the kind of creative process and the muse and all that kind of stuff. Is there a way to kind of reconcile those two? Yeah, I think it has to be done very carefully. I mean, we have done, um, we have done some pilots where we, we take books that have been acquired by imprints and then we'll have readers read them and we, we let them know, you know, we're, you're getting, you're getting to read this in advance of its publication, but um, we're also going to watch what you do. So we, we can AB test covers and descriptions that way. We can also see like, do all the, do all the readers fall off at chapter seven? Um, That's something to know, like what's the rate of completion, you know, what's the, 
what's the percentage of completion, right? Is this a book that's really gonna, that's really connecting with readers where they can't put it down? I mean, that's all stuff that can be um, used by the editors, by the authors, if they want. Getting good data mm-hmm. and then figuring out how to use the data is is the challenge, right? This is, it's a primary frustration that publishers have, which is that we, in terms of, you know, digital reading, we're disintermediated by all the third parties that we work with. But there are startups that are willing to share some reader data and some other larger companies as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have to figure out, okay, do we have the internal resources to take the data that we get? And use it at the at the appropriate moment instead of you know in a post mortem fashion after the book is published and either finds its audience or doesn't. To actually be more predictive and to do some of like the Netflixy type of things where you're is that is that kind of what you mean instead of just yeah. after the got it yeah and and also just uh, it's not so much a, a tool for authors but for us to to do trends detection which we yeah. spend a lot of time and energy doing really really specific. Uh, trend detection in terms of nonfiction, like that's something people are searching for a certain book that is about X, Y, or Z, and it's very, very specific and it and doesn't return any book results. Well, that we do have an imprint, you know, that is really a data driven imprint where we try to publish to that need. So it's it's a complete reversal of how publishing generally works, which is you create the book and then you market it to create the need. Right. This starts with this is something that consumers are, are looking for. Readers I think are- I heard about this. This was where you, where you're, you know, you identified like multiple trends and kind of put it together to almost kind of cr- like assemble a new title that was kind of hitting on multiple sort of um, hot topics. Is that, was it like, it was like, ke- like keto or something like that? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, in, it's called intermittent keto. So, <laughs> so cool. It was intermittent fasting and there was keto. And so we, we, we found these both were, you know, very, very hot topics in, uh, in life hacking and we put it together into a, a book and we commissioned this book and, and published it very, very fast. So that's exactly that's what really, I'm talking really, about. That's yeah. super neat. Super. What, what, I guess from, what else are you sort of excited about? I mean, like, um, virtual reality or augmented reality or whatever. I know there's, there's probably some similar economic questions around doing it in a way that's sort of cost effective, but are, are you seeing any interesting use cases there or anything that you're kind of excited about from that perspective? Yeah, I, I'm really excited about, um, all the realities. <laughs> so augmented reality, reality and virtual reality. I mean, I'm excited as a consumer for virtual reality, not as someone who works in innovation and book publishing, because those two things are very, very far apart. Uh, the budgets that uh, are still required to do virtual reality are kind of beyond the scope of what we might do. But yeah. augmented reality is super fascinating. Um, and we're seeing a lot of great use cases around tourism where you could sort of unveil the city as you walk around it. Um, and we have, you know, big tourism imprints in, in France and in the U S so we've been talking, um, we've been talking to them. We've also thought about how augmented reality could work in the bookstore where, uh, you know, you could, uh, use, you know, cue off the title of the book or the cover of the book and have the author speak to you cool. um, about why he or she wrote that book or 
you know, we have the, we have the international license for Fortnite. So the idea would be, you know, that you could somehow cue off the cover and, uh, create a figure that dances and then dance with them and share it on social media. Like there's just, it just opens up all these avenues. And now with, uh, with Google and Google lens, you know, which is going to be the way that a lot of people are going to search for things using the lens. It, it sort of makes augmented reality um, a little bit easier so you don't have to download a new app in order to access it, um, which you have to do now. So we're, we're, we think that democratizes augmented reality. And also, you know, what happened with Pokemon Go was such a huge sensation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now with Harry Potter Wizards Unite, I mean, that's just the beginning of all these worlds that are going to be be created and that people are going to be used to accessing through their, through their mobile devices. And I think it's, it's, I, I have no end of use cases I can think of for augmented reality, really. Yeah, totally. So for, for folks that maybe, um, are, are, are in a role like yours or, you know, either broadly kind of trying to think about like coming in and trying to, to help um, an organization move forward, or maybe even, you know, specifically organizations that are, that have kind of legacy business models that have lots of kind of play, like have, have kind of a robust ecosystem with a bunch of different players that maybe have competing priorities or is there, is there advice you find yourself giving to folks kind of over and over again in terms of how to kind of maximize the likelihood of, of success for them inside of their role and inside of their organization? I think it's, it's really about being curious and getting a lot of different inputs. I mean, that from, for me and my team is, is the key is that we, we're not focused on, you know, on the core business so much as like the weak signals that we're hearing on the edges of our business. And, and we try to kind of change the frame of, of where we're, where we're focused so that we can say, okay, we, we know that this isn't going to affect your business today or even in the next six months, but we really think it's something for you to stop and think about and let's like workshop some ideas around it mm-hmm. just so we're ready. You know, it's like, it's a form of, of battle readiness to do these thought experiments and to, and I would say it's also key for us to be involved with, with the startup ecosystems. I, I live in Silicon Valley and I spend a lot of time going to demo days and like hearing what these, you know, youngsters compared to me are, are coming up with. And, and sometimes they just, they, it seems crazy. And sometimes I can really see a, a direct path from what they're working on, even if it's just the germ of an idea to something that could be scaled up and commercialized and could really uh, change our business, offer us new opportunities that we wouldn't have thought of. So it's about I guess it's just about being, not being too narrowly focused, like be curious, look around, look at the edges and see what you see, what the connections you can make are. I think that that's our biggest challenge as the innovation group is like, okay, so we see something really interesting, but how do we then sit down and make those connections, make the transitions and say, okay, what if we experimented with this in this way? which could lead to the second phase, which could lead to this third phase, which then could become part of your business, right? It's yeah. like building those bridges is the thing that we spend a lot of time doing, those yeah. mental bridges. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Well, this was awesome. Um, for folks that maybe want to learn more about um, some of the work that you're doing or, or just, you know, how you, how you think about the world, is there any, anywhere I can send folks? Sure. I'm, I'm Digimaya on all the socials um, across, across everything. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm always happy for people to be in touch if they have questions or ideas or they want to pitch me. I love it. <laughs> uh, uh, in my official capacity, I'm maya.thomas at hbgusa.com. So that's a way to find me as well. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. This was great. It was great talking to you. Thanks for great questions. Thank you. My guest today was Maya Thomas. For more information on how to innovate inside of your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, would love a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.